1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11. I'm not sure how many members in the church even know about this passage of Scripture, but uh, probably you've read this. If you've been around the church a little bit, you've been around the Bible, you've probably read this and asked the question, are women supposed to wear hats to the church? And we're going to answer that question tonight. What about head coverings on women? And what about the length of hair? I mean, this is all right here. You're probably wondering all about this. And I know like uh, myself and probably others of you, we probably have taken a verse here and there out of this passage of Scripture and probably have used it out of context. And I want us to understand the Word of God tonight. Uh, there's some good stuff here. Don't fall asleep on me. Amen? If you fall asleep, I'm going to catch you on camera tonight. So don't fall asleep on me. I want you to get, be right with it. This is not a boring mess. By the way, the Bible's not boring. Amen? The Bible's exciting. And uh, there's some good things here. And there's some, there's some good application here because deep beneath just the head covering issue, we have to understand the symbolism and the message behind it, but there's a deeper message that Paul has for us in this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for sake of time, we'll just read the first 10 verses. Verses 1 to 16 are one topic. Verses 17 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 34, is another topic which we'll get into. Tonight, we're in verses 1 to 16, but we're only going to read verses 1 to 10. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren. That you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But have you know that the head of every man is Christ? Now we're gonna see the word head mentioned nine times in four or five verses. Please circle the word head. It's the key, key thought tonight in the passage. But, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying. Now circle the word prophesying. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit tonight. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered. In other words, wearing, wearing something on his head other than his hair. Assuming he has hair, amen. Dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth. Wow, women prophesied in those days. Some of the ladies in church are getting excited, amen? But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovereth, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, even as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a woman indeed ought not to cover, for a woman indeed, let me see here, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Are you confused already? Amen? You know? For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. I'm going to preach a message. I thought and prayed over this for several days. I'm kind of in this section of 1 Corinthians and uh, section of Isaiah. It takes a little more time to study and think over in terms of just which way you're going to go with this. And um, I want to preach you a message entitled, Headaches in the Church. Headaches in the Church. And uh, you have to remember, Chloe delivered a letter to, the house of Chloe delivered a letter to Paul. But all the things that were happening at the church at Corinth. I mean, he was their founding pastor. And one of the issues that they wrote about is right here in chapter 11 about what I've entitled headaches in the church. Now, we're going somewhere tonight, and I hope you'll take some notes because one of these days you're going to teach a Bible class or lead a Bible study, and you're going to, you want to know how to explain this. You want to know how to explain it exactly according to the Scriptures tonight. So we're going to look at this this evening and pray that God will just speak to our hearts and help us this evening in understanding His Word. Father, bless Your Word tonight. It's been read you said, blessed are they that read and keep the words of this prophecy. 
And uh, tonight, Lord, I pray that you clear up my thoughts, help the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in thy sight and before your people. Father, I pray to be a good feeding shepherd tonight, to feed the flock of God, feed their souls, dig deep into their soul, work in their hearts. May children, teenagers, college students, young adults, everyone benefit tonight. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Coming to chapter 11, we've spent three weeks, three studies on the topic of Christian liberty, the liberty and freedom we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul took specifically the context, the idea of food offered to idols. There was a group of believers that had been grounded in the faith. They were very secure in their liberty in Jesus Christ. They knew, first of all, that an idol is nothing. It cannot speak to you. It cannot hear you. It cannot touch you. An idol is nothing. But there were other believers who were not grounded, who were not strong in the Lord, who had not gone through a New Foundations discipleship class, but they grew up in a pagan background, and of course Athens and Corinth, being part of Greece, was a very idolistic, if you would, a very idol-centric uh, uh, island. And behind them, of course, was the Temple of Diana, and uh, there was much idol worship there. And these believers who were not grounded in the faith had a hard time reconciling their mind, the more mature Christians who were eating meats that had been offered idols. So Paul made this instruction. I'm going to give you a summary. I'm, I'm going somewhere as we lead into this. He said, if you purchase meat that was sold in the marketplace, don't ask where it came from. Don't ask if it was offered idols. Just go and buy it. Or you want to make sure you don't get food poisoning, amen. But you go ahead and buy it and eat it, that's fine. Kind of like going to In-N-Out Burger. You don't ask where it's been, amen. You don't, ask, you don't ask who cooked it, you just eat it, amen. You don't ask any questions there. Of course, if you did, they probably would tell you to get out of line there, amen. Thirdly, he said if you attended a feast, you were invited to a feast, a ceremony, and meat was offered to you, go ahead and eat it. Don't ask questions where it was from. Don't, don't ask if it was offered idols, okay. But fourthly, he said, if a brother in Christ, who happens to be a weaker brother, weaker in conscience, uh, invites you to his home for a meal, and he sets meat before you, and he tells you that the meat was offered to an idol, then Paul made an exception. He says, don't eat it. The brother's telling you that because he has a weak conscience. He's letting you know it was offered to an idol, and the very fact he told you that, he wants to see what you're going to do. He says, don't eat it, because in doing so, you'll offend his conscience, and offending his conscience, we saw in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he said, you might wound the weaker conscience of that brother, and in so wounding him, you cause him to stumble, and it caused him to stumble, you are the one that has sinned. Now, Paul gave us instruction, as we saw last week. He said, when you pull this all together, we who are stronger and have understanding realize that our liberty in Christ says we can eat that food offered to idol. It doesn't, it's, it's nothing. He taught, the, he taught this, this important law. He said, all things are expedient for me, but all things may not be profitable. He says, it may be okay, and, it, and I can do it, but I have, to, I have to take into account how does this impact everyone else here. So Paul gave some guidelines. He says, okay, now you know you've got liberty. Number one, use your liberty for good. Number two, use your liberty for God, for the glory of God. Number three, use your liberty for the gospel. I mean, that's kind of how he helps us there. Now, you can take this foundational principle and apply it to a lot of things that perhaps the Bible doesn't necessarily address to understand what do we do about this situation or that situation? What do we do about this? What do we do about that? And, that, you know, there's a lot of confusion that I think a lot of people get involved with because they don't handle it correctly and apply the right principles. Now, that all being said, notice we get to chapter 11, verse 1. And Paul is picking up where he left off. He's going to pick up where he left off, but he's going to use that to weave into a whole new topic. Now, as we get to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 
1 Corinthians 13 and 14, all four chapters, deal with orderliness in the church. He's not dealing with organizational matters of the church. He's dealing with orderliness in the church. As we'll see tonight, the church at Corinth was a church that was in chaos. They were just confused about a lot of different things, and there were practices and things going on that needed to, they needed to get under control there. Now, I think every church is going to experience at a period of time, one or the other, there's going to be some disorder in th how things are happening. And we have to go back to the Scriptures to understand how do we deal with things that are disorderly. Now, you'll notice here in chapter 11, these 16 verses we're going to be studying tonight, that Paul deals with the, the matter of the head, headship. Leadership, who's in charge, authority, and he ties headship into the glory of God. So when we read this, there's the, there, you're going to see that the symbol of the head is dealing with the matter of orderliness or rank and order. I thought probably that's the best phrase to use, is that he uses head to speak about rank and order. And as he does so, he uses the head to speak about the significance of head coverings because that was part of the custom. Let me just say one more thing here before I get into this passage. Let us remember tonight that in the context of what Paul's speaking about, he's dealing with a specific cultural context that had application to the people of that day that necessarily does not have application to our day. You have to always remember that. He's dealing with a cultural context that doesn't necessarily have meaning to us today, but there is a spiritual, a significant spiritual context that applies to us today, so we must keep that in mind. So I want to speak to you tonight about something that was a headache to Paul. It was a headache to the leaders at the church at Corinth. We want to look at headaches in the church. Let's look at this passage tonight real quickly. Number one, notice in verses one and two we see the introduction. Paul is carrying on where he left off last time. On this matter of using your liberty for good, using your liberty for God, using your liberty for the gospel. He gives an introduction. As a spiritual father, he is kind of, he takes a deep breath and um, He's knowing that he has to deal with a lot of issues. I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes in the church, you can have days and weeks where you just got a lot of issues you have to deal with. And sometimes they just compound themselves, and, and you just kind of scratch your head wondering, how do you deal with that? And, and you know, as a, as, a, as a pastor, sometimes you have to deal with the fact that, you know, they can, you can be a little bit exasperated by this. And, but Paul, as he realizes, he's getting it now into chapter, chapter 11. He's going to get into two subjects that are very, very touchy. He's going to step on some feet. And step on some toes. And as he steps on those toes, he wants to do that without breaking some toes. Because they are very touchy subjects here. And uh, so Paul approaches this, this subject here in verses 1 to 16 as a spiritual father being very patient and uh, knowing that he has to give them strong correction that will help them in their walk with God. Now, as pastors, I just will make a confession today. I think, and I'm probably worse at this than anybody else, we have a tendency to be very, very overwhelming to our congregations. Um, you know, Baptist churches, we believe in preaching, amen? And we believe in church assembly, amen? And we believe that we ought to get to church, and we ought to be in the preaching of God's word, and we believe that's the right thing to do. And, um, you know, it's, it can be very overwhelming for a church, to be real honest with you. You preach a message that I'm going to preach tonight, and people have had a couple days to think on it, then we get right into Sunday morning, and we got a new topic we're dealing with, and, uh, and an application for that, and then we just, we just have heard that, and then some of us have Zoom classes for our adult growth groups on Sunday afternoon, and then after that we get right into Sunday night service, a whole new different topic, and quite honestly, I think, I think people barely have time to breathe. I think they barely have time to digest what they've read and what they've heard, and they've received it well, and they understand it, and they're convicted, and they make a decision, and they want to live for God, they want to do something for the Lord, but it can be very overwhelming. Because we've, we barely have let what we heard on Wednesday night sink into our hearts. And then we're at Sunday morning. Then we're Sunday afternoon. Then we're Sunday night. Then all of a sudden we're right back on Wednesday night. There can be very overwhelming. And so as a pastor every now and then we have to stop, as Paul did here in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And we have to remember, we've got to get the, let the church have time to catch up. And we've got to be patient with the church. And we've got to be able to help guide the church and shepherd the church in the right way. So I want you to notice what, number one, Paul has an introduction here. And he has in mind the spiritual welfare of the church. So number one, notice in verse one, Paul gives them a practical command. He just finished teaching them on three chapters about the matter of Christian liberty. How to make the right decision. 
how to be discerning with your liberty, how to make sure that what you do, that we are very careful that we don't wound and hinder the weaker, the brother who has a weaker conscience. And so he says in verse one, okay, let me, he says, let me pull it all together, what you just heard, what you've heard just now for the first 11, 10 chapters, and what you're going to hear going forward. He said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, if you didn't know Paul, you didn't know his heart, you didn't know his walk with God, you didn't know how he's living for Christ, you might say, well, that's pretty arrogant. You got a lot of ego there. You got a lot of nerve, buddy, to tell me to follow you. But the truth of the matter was, Paul, well, this was not the first time, this would not be the second time Paul would make a statement like He had the authority to make that kind of statement. He had the right to make that kind of statement because he walked what he taught. He said, be ye followers of me. It's the word where we get our word mimic from. Be an imitator. Be a mimic. Copy me. Be a copycat of my life. Be a copycat of what I do. Paul said, be ye followers of me. But he qualified it by saying, even as I also am of Jesus Christ. Hey, let me tell you something tonight about the teaching ministry of every Christian. Our teaching ministry is not one where we're just filling someone's head with a bunch of facts. And we're not just giving them a lot of doctrine. And our goal is not to graduate you from a discipleship book. Our goal is that your life is changed, that the Word of God transforms you. I'll give you an example. I, uh, I'm very thankful that uh, Denny's son, brother, brother, brother Josh, is at Heartland Baptist Bible College right now, and he's eating it up. I mean, he's excited. I uh, texted him last week on the opening day, said, how you doing? And I said, you have a minute? Let me have a word of prayer with you. And, and we did, and we, we prayed a little bit, and I texted him yesterday or today. I forgot which day it was. Maybe it was yesterday. He said, hey, how are you doing after several days? He's a pastor. I love it. I'm eating it up. And he said, I, I, my Bible doctrine class, my, my teacher is Brother Rocky Harrell. Now, a lot of you don't know Rocky Harrell. I know Rocky Harrell. Rocky Harrell can preach the Word of God. I mean, he can get up here behind a pulpit. He'll preach for three hours like Sam Davidson. You wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know that Rocky Hill would pray. Now, most people don't even know Rocky Hill. He pastors a church here, a thriving church, a good church here in the Oklahoma here. It's driving distance to Heartland Baptist Bible College. And this is what Josh said. He said, Pastor, I love it. He said, Rocky, Brother Rocky Harold gets up to preach doctrine. And man, I feel like I'm in a fiery preaching service. That's the way the preaching ought to be. Amen? That's the way doctrine ought to be. You ought to feel like when somebody speaks about the atonement or the resurrection or about the deity of Jesus Christ, you ought to feel, if they're teaching it, you're in a fiery service. Let me tell you something tonight. The preaching and teaching of God's Word ought to transform our life to such a degree that we look at the person teaching it, and we can say, I want to model what that person's all about. I want to model his life. I want to model his godliness. I want to model his speech. I want to model his practices. I want to model his soul winning. I want to model his praying. Why? Because he's living what he's preaching. So Paul said, follow me even as I am of Christ. No teacher has a right to get up behind a pulpit or behind a podium and teach the word of God if he himself is not even living it. How can you teach about faith promise if you're not giving to faith promise? How can you preach about soul winning if you're not involved in soul winning? How can you talk about praying when you're not praying to God? So Paul said, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. He said in Ephesians 5, what? He told the same thing to the believers at Ephesus. Be ye followers, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Having a little granddaughter, I'm reminded that children pick up really fast. They copy you. Boy, you better be careful what you say and what you do, amen? They copy you. He said, be ye therefore followers of God as precious children. He said in Philippians 4.9, he told the believers of Philippi, again, they were having a lot of struggles there too. He said, those things which you've both learned and received and heard and seen. Listen to that. The things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Here's his instruction. This is how you graduate Bible college. Do it. Do it. I'm old school. Some of you young guys who have to have a preacher hold your hand and give you something that's sensational and give you something that's pragmatic because you feel like the old ways don't work. I'm going to tell you today, the old ways still work. You need to hang around me a little bit and realize the old ways still work. 
God still answers prayer the old way. God still wins souls the old way. God still uses the power of God. You can read all the books you want and be pragmatic as you want, and you can be a John Maxwell graduate and think you've got leadership down, but I'm going to tell you, God blesses where the power of God comes down on a person's life. He said, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, or over, uh, who have spoken as you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Paul said, be followers of me. I said it was old school. And I knew God was working in my heart about pastoring. If you'd asked me 30 years before, I would have said, no way. I didn't think I had the gift for it. Pastoring's a gift. It's one of the spiritual gifts. As God started working my heart, it was probably a latent gift that he revealed later on. I started studying the lives and the practices of several pastors. I can name off two handfuls right now. I mean, I studied how they even sat on the platform. I studied their lives, how they wrote their correspondence, how they corrected. I mean, everything. They're all different. I started realizing that something that was very unique. Each of those pastors who pastored a thriving work, those works were thriving and God was blessing because there were church members in there who figured out Philippians 4.9 and 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, the things which you've learned and heard and seen in me do. Now I'm going to tell you, listen, you're going to, if, you're going to, if you're in the ministry, you're going to stay in the ministry if you follow the right leader. And you're going to succeed in ministry if you follow the right leader. You know, I was telling one of our men that we am training right now. He, he texted me the other day. He said, preacher, he said, I feel like I'm, I'm like in a valley where I'm at right now. And what he was saying is that things are kind of stuck. I understand that. So I said, tell me why you feel that way. I said, what about this? What about this? What about that? And I told him, I said this. I said, listen. I said, this is not a problem. But I said, what's fixated in your mind, if you've seen all these models of success that are in the Western world, and you're wondering how come that's not happening for you, and I said, it's a very simple answer. I said, God is not going to bless you like he blessed somebody else until you've learned submission, humility, fasting, and prayer, and walking with God, and spending some time and begging God, and realizing you've got to come to the place. God doesn't build the church through you. He builds the church because it's his church. He uses you if you do it his way. But I said, you're trying to do all these different things, and you're working very hard, and you're practicing all these things. And I said, there comes a time you've just got to stop and let God grow his work his way, the way he wants to do it, not your way, the way you're trying to do it. And Paul wasn't saying he was a perfect example. And no man who says, follow me, is, ought to say that he's a perfect example. Because he qualified his statement saying, even as I am of Christ. But I want to tell you tonight, Paul gave a command. Church, listen to me tonight. I'm not going to call him off like Paul did. But a day's coming. Church will resume where most people will be back. I'm not sure we'll have Sunday school the way we have done it. I'm not sure what our Friday night club fellowships will be. I don't even know if we'll even have them the same way. Our services may be different. I mean, there may be a lot of things different just because of just how things are unfolding right now. But I'm going to tell you, God gives us a proven pattern and when I've decided that's the pattern God wants us to do, I'm going to tell you the same thing. The things you've learned and heard and seen in me, I'm just going to ask you, let's do it. Amen? Let's just go do it. Now, I'm going to tell you the problem here. This is setting the groundwork here. I'm going to tell you the problem because this is setting the groundwork for what Paul's getting into. The problem we have, before I get to the next point, is that there's too much rebellion and insubordination in our hearts. That's what Paul is going to be dealing with here in this 16 verse, these first 16 verses. It's the problem of submission and subordination. And where we struggle with that 
It manifests itself in every facet of our life. It, it's manifest in our marriages. It's manifest in how we raise our children or how our children respond to us. It's manifest in how other people deal with us and what they think of us. So Paul says, gives here, he gives a command. And this is very important. Right at this critical stage of the, of the letters, this letter he's writing, he had to make that statement there because you know what? He preached his heart out. He wrote his heart out for 10, 10 chapters and he knew the personalities at Corinth. And he knew who was on board with him. And he knew who wasn't on board with him. So he had to make this statement, which was a qualified statement. He said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I'm going to tell you something tonight. Listen, we can't have a church where every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Then we're going to wind up just like the people did in the days of the judges. We have to have a church. We follow the pattern that God has laid for us in his word. Number one, we see a personal command. Not letter B, notice we see a personal commendation. Now, he didn't have to say as much as I did in verse 1 because they knew what he was talking about. But remember now, Paul's writing as a spiritual father. He referenced that in chapter 4. And before he gets into this matter of, these matters of, and I'll just tell you ahead of time, submission and modesty and preeminence of Christ, he takes a moment to give a personal commendation. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Now let me, let me say two things about this real quickly, because I've got to get into the context here tonight, because it's going to get pretty heavy. First of all, Paul was praising and commending them for remembering him where he was at. Now I'm going to tell you what he, what he meant by that. Number one, they remembered him in his need because he's not with them when he wrote this letter. And just like the churches at Macedonia, this church at Corinth has probably sent him a love offering. They were concerned about his need. He said they remembered him in all things. They remembered that he was their missionary. They remembered to pray for him. They remembered to write him, and they did. They remembered to send representatives to deal with the issues. I mean, they remembered him in all things. They remembered his heart. They remembered his, they remembered his life. They remembered his mouth. You know, the problem we have in our Western culture is that we, we, we get so busy what we do and where we go, we have a tendency, and i just tell you this, we have a tendency that we forget people. We forget what's going on. I was thankful this past week, and she's probably watching tonight. I, I, I was uh, a very, very, uh, very just, how do I say this? It was uh, very grievous to me that one of our members that had, had uh, moved away that because of a number of reasons, and, and I didn't fault them for anything. I just felt really bad they had moved away, and you know, a lot, we have a lot more people, uh, the attrition factor we're facing in our church right now. We have a lot more people moving away because, because of retirement, and, and economics, and, and politics, and taxes, and other things like that, and you know, and I understand that. I, I, I get it there, okay? And, and, you know, and so they, they moved away, but we stayed in contact, and this dear, this dear lady uh, stayed, stayed, stayed connected to our discipleship classes, and that's a good thing, and so forth there. And I was so thankful that we found out a few weeks ago that she was going to be back now. I was so thankful to see her in church on Sunday morning. I think it was at the second hour service, and, she, and most of you know who I'm talking about here. I was so thankful to see her. She was excited to be here. I mean, she felt like it was a homecoming for her. And, uh, you know, it was just it was a wonderful thing. And, but, you know, I, but for a lot of us, we forget people. Now, I, I'll tell you right now, I, I still have a lot of former members. I still pray for. I think about the Meyerhoffers who moved to Tennessee. I texted them the other day. She said, hey, how are you guys doing there? And just wanted to let you know I'm praying for you. I texted a few other people that have moved away. I still have several of them that when I, I send them copies of my message notes, my sermon notes, when I send it out to Brother Vaughn and everybody else, I include them on my blind copy there. So I want them to get a copy because I'm still thinking about them. You know, we, we have to remember people. I'm just saying to you tonight, we need to remember. I remember preachers. I, I'll take time during the week. Some preacher friends of mine, I want to remember them and, and, and let them know they're praying. Some of them do the same thing for me. And Paul was saying here, I commit you, I praise you for remembering me, but he said this also. He said, not remember me in all things, and he really talking about the spiritual aspect of things, but he said, I praise you that you're keeping the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Now, that, that's a message all to itself that I wish I had time to talk about those ordinances, but he's talking about that the faith once delivered to the saints that he had given to them. He said, as, as, as he was taught, and, and, and as the disciples were, the apostles were taught by Jesus, he said, I'm thanking God that you are keeping the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Let me say tonight, I'm thankful this evening for Heritage Baptist Church and the core of leaders and the membership we have for those members who 
are keeping the traditions just as they've been delivered. Hey, I want to thank you tonight for being Baptistic. I want to thank you tonight for realizing that we're a Baptist church and we're not some Yahoo church. Amen. I want to thank you tonight for being faithful to God. I want to thank you tonight for, for being faithful with your tithes and being faithful in your tenets and participating in Faith Promise Mission and being there when the church has needed you. And thank you for praying for people. And thank you for taking that prayer page and making it real in your heart. Paul is saying here, he said, I just praise you for keeping the ordinances that I delivered to you. I want to tell you tonight, thank you for being an obedient Christian. Thank you for living for God. Thank you when you make a mistake that you're honest enough to admit it. Thank you for humbling yourself and serving God. Thank you for some of you who, who very quietly come here on a Saturday and you give two or three hours of your Saturday morning to come alongside of us here at the church to help clean our church and to do the maintenance and cleaning. I was thankful for a family the other day that just said, Pastor, God's working our lives. We just want to know, and they're a very busy family, a young family. They said, what can we do around the church? And I said, put out there. I said, well, I always use help in cleaning and maintenance, and I can use a few more people involved with so on. And they got back to me within minutes. They said, Pastor, we would love to do all that. I say, thank God for that. Amen. Thank God for members who have a heart for serving God. Thank God for members who will do what they need to do. Paul said, I want to praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver. Hey, listen, you want to make your pastor happy? Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Keep on being faithful. Obey God. Don't be a drama queen. Amen? Live for Jesus. Do the things that honor God. So Paul gives an introduction. And I remind you today, as Paul writes that, I think writes this, he was saying the same thing that the Apostle John said in 3 John. He says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the truth. But number two, would you notice the issue? This is where we get into the heavy stuff now. Get your pen and pencil out, amen? Your paper, pad, and pencil out. You're going to take some notes here. The issue at hand is dealing with the subject of orderliness and submission. In those days, you have to think about how people came to church, how they presented themselves in public, what was orderly, what was considered disorderly. Now remember the background of this. Corinth was an idol-worshiping society. Do I have a church that preached the gospel located right in the center of that city? That was a miracle of God. And the issue at hand Paul's dealing with was that the proper orderly thing that they did was when they came to, to church, and he described church, the public worship of God as praying and prophesying. Now, you say, what did they do in those days? I promise you the early church spent more time praying than they did talking. They prayed because they had burdens. And they had problems. You got to remember the makeup of the church in those days. Slaves, women who had abusive husbands. And you have to remember the, the cultural context. Women were considered second-class citizens. In fact, if you read some of the classics, I mean, you talk about, you talk about just putting women down. They were pretty, they were pretty, they put women down pretty bad. Women had no rights. Women were treated very poorly. I talked about this in chapter 7. Women had tough marriages before they got saved. But they're coming to church. Women are getting saved. They're coming to church. Listen to me tonight. The proper attire that represented modesty and dignity and godliness was a woman wore what I would call, and I forget the, the brother Justin might know the term, I forgot, I forget what it is now, the, the term, but it was it was it was a it was a it was a Jewish or if you would a cultural attire, which was kind of a combination of a veil and a shawl. Now lengthwise, it covered her head and it went down to all the way to the to her long flowing garment, because she wore garments that for modesty purposes, they didn't show even their ankles. And um, this covering would cover also around her face. The only thing exposed would be pretty much the bridge of her nose and uh, 
her forehead and her eyes. Kind of like wearing face coverings today. You might say face coverings are probably biblical. Amen. You know, that's what they did then, okay? But that was a woman. A woman wore that in public to show dignity out of modesty. And as we'll see this evening, in a, in a, in a Christian context, in a biblical context, it was showing submission to her husband and was part of giving glory to God. you got to remember that. Wearing a head covering for a woman gave glory to God. Now, every woman that assembled in a church at Corinth and most other New Testament churches wore that kind of a head covering. Remember, it's a kind of a combination of a veil and a shawl. Men were not supposed to wear a head covering. What I mean by that, they were not supposed to cover their head. Men were supposed to have their hair, and their hair was supposed to be short. Now, what is short? The Bible doesn't define short, but definitely we know this from a gender distinction. That's an important phrase here. A gender distinction, it had to be shorter than the woman's hair. Women were, in those days, they wore long hair. They wore their hair long. I'm not sure what long meant. I'm not sure if it went all the way down to the back. I'm not sure if it meant shoulder length, but it was longer, it was longer than men. But they wore it long, their, the length of their hair. I mean, basically, when you looked at a woman from behind, you knew it was a woman. Amen? Okay? It was just something about her hair. But the issue was the women. Now, remember, we just got out of this matter of Christian liberty and freedom. The women who got saved at Corinth, and this is not all of them, but there were a few of them, and it, and it kind of became a growing, a growing nuisance growing nuisance there because, and that's why I call it headaches in the church, the women there were thankful for the freedom that they received in Jesus Christ. Now remember, women in that society were, were ill-treated. They were stepped on. They were disregarded. I mean, you're talking about disrespect. A woman's place was very disrespected. Her husband cheated on her. Men looked down on them. They only saw women for good for one thing, for two things, and that was it. And it was just very terrible. When they got saved, they saw the incredible freedom, first of all, the freedom that Jesus Christ gives from sin and the freedom that Jesus Christ gives from, that kind of, from tyranny and all those things. And then, you know, as you know, Paul wrote Galatians 3.28 for he, he talked about equality in Jesus Christ. So as being in church, they realized on a spiritual level that there, there's equality between them and the men because the Bible says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, Bond or free, all are, are the same, all are one in Jesus Christ. And that, you have to understand, in the context of that day, that is an incredibly liberating, equalizing statement that you could have. Now, they understood that what submission was all about. But in the context of being ill-treated and abused and all these kind of things and being talked down on, there was equality that a woman felt. There was no caste system in Jesus Christ. I mean, it was, you know, it was just, there was some tension about a man speaking to a woman in church, and, and, and but there they could, they could fellowship and speak to one another, and a woman could serve a man, and they did serve the men, and they cared for the men of the church, and the men cared for the women, but they kept their distance. They had to make sure they kept their distance right. The issue, though, these women at Corinth started appearing to the public worship services without their head coverings. Paul addresses this in verses 4 through 7. They start appearing without their head coverings. And they're praying in public. And they're prophesying in public. Now you got to remember one thing. This equality in Jesus Christ. Men and women in the early church, they prayed publicly. That was okay. There was also prophesying. Now today, we would call prophesying Forthtelling, we would classify prophesying equal to preaching. Prophesying in those days was a temporary spiritual gift, and I want to I highlight that. It was a temporary spiritual gift. It was one of the sign gifts that no longer exists. We, it, was, it was given at that time uh, to, the, the, to the first century church because all of the, 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 the written revelation of God, the Word of God, was not completed. The New Testament canon was not completed. And so prophesying would be where, where the Holy Spirit spoke to a woman and gave her a revelation 
that was in, that was going to be for that that would occur, and, and she would speak, or a man would speak, so men and women equally could prophesy. Now, well, we know that there were there were women prophets in the church because we're told in Acts chapter twenty one that Philip had four virgin daughters, and each of them were prophets of God. They were prophets, I, and I can, I can see why because they had a they had a preaching they had a preaching father. They had a father who was an evangelist who loved preaching, and and God worked through that. But they did it in the context of humility. They did it in the context of modesty, and they did it. If you read First Corinthians fourteen, they did it in the context of all prophesying that was done during the Bible time in that first century was for the edification of the believer. It was not a boasting of a gift or exerting himself. Now, we're going to get into this in chapter 14. Can women preach in the church? Can women be pastors? The long and short is no. Amen. You weak guys, you, ought, you men ought to say amen to that. Come on, guys. But, the Bible gets into that. These women at Corinth got up, no head covering. They're prophesying and they're praying. We have problems now. Because, and I'll get into this a little bit more, these women, by having their heads uncovered, we're showing disrespect, first of all, to God, secondly, to their husbands, thirdly, to the men of the church, fourthly, to their testimony in society. Because the only women who walked around in society without their heads covered were the temple prostitutes. That's why Paul talks about shaving and shorning, cutting your hair short or shaving your hair off the head because the temple prostitutes wore their hair short to identify who they wore and they never wore a head covering. And so Paul in writing this says the issue is, ladies, do you realize what you're doing? If you're, if, he says, you are, you are bringing yourself, you are lowering yourself to the same level as the temple prostitutes that are there for the temple of Aphrodite Diana. Do you understand what's going on there? And so, the, but the women were saying, what, what's wrong with it? Why do we have to wear a head covering? What is this all about? What's the purpose of a head covering? Can I just take my head covering off? I can understand that. They felt hot. And in that, in that sticky uh, climate. They probably felt hot and the humidity and all that, and they just wanted to take it off. They still had long hair. They, I don't believe these women were cutting their hair off. I think Paul used that to, to, to drive home the point that he wanted to say there, but they were doing this, and so Paul got a letter about this. Hey, we've got a problem here, Paul. We've got some sisters in Christ who are coming here. They're praying and prophesying, and their husbands are in the service, or their husbands are not saved. They're doing this, but they're coming without their heads covered. What do we do about the situation? Is this a problem or not? There's a problem with the order. The women had been corrected, but they still came to church that way. What does the Bible say about modesty? What does the Bible say about submission? Wait a minute, Paul, you just didn't went in three chapters and told us about liberty, and we're to use our liberty for good and for God and for the gospel, and these ladies are taking their head coverings off because they said, you know what, we don't feel like we have to wear it, and we understand it may make us look like the temple prostitutes, but we're not temple prostitutes, and we're saved, and we still have long hair, and we're not going to cut our hair to look like them. What's the big deal about this matter here? Well, number three, notice the instructions. Now, notice how Paul deals with this. Paul gives clear, strong, biblical instruction regarding headship, order, and rank. Say amen. If you're, you're watching my live stream right now, send an amen if you're following me right now, because I want to make sure you're following me. Number one in his instruction, would you consider the sovereign order? Verses 3 to 7, and he starts off with verse 3, by helping us understand the sovereign order by the design of God. Now, remember I said the word head to circle it? The idea of the head is talking about preeminence, leadership, rank, and order. So notice the sovereign order that God gives us in verse 3. He says, now you've kept the ordinances that I've delivered to you, 
But there's one you haven't kept. There's one you have some struggles with here at your church. He says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. Sovereign order number one is that every man is to be in submission to Jesus Christ. Hey, let me tell you something today. Men like to get off, which I'm going to get into in a minute. Men like to get off on the fact about a, a wife that's not submissive, because we're dealing with the home matter here. We're dealing with the home lives. And the, men like to get off about a wife that's not in submission, that doesn't follow through. And your, your crazy idea of submission is you think your wife is supposed to be your servant and your slave. That is not what submission is. Submit, biblical submission is talking, the word, the Greek word hupatasso is a military word that specifically is talking about rank and order. It's basically as a soldier, as a private, obeys the sergeant, and the sergeant obeys the colonel, and the colonel obeys the general. They realize there's a rank and order to what they're doing. Otherwise, everything would be a chaos there. Every man is to be submissive to Christ. Now here's what goes on. A man gets all these cocky ideas about his wife not being submission to, to Jesus Christ. But the real problem is, is that the man has a problem being uh, about the wife being submission to him. But the real problem is, is the husband has a problem with the fact that he's not in submission to Jesus Christ. Now I can trace this to tell you this right now. I'm going to be real blunt about this. Every church member that has a problem submitting, submitting to pastoral authority, I'm going to tell you what your problem is. Your problem is not pastoral authority. Your problem is submitting to Jesus Christ. That's the problem right there. You're not obeying his word. You're not obeying him. You're given to the traditions of men rather than the commandments of God. You elevate the traditions of men over the commandments of God. You, you would prefer what you've seen and what you think and your ideas and your, your degree that you've got a bachelor's degree in some kind of, some, some kind of mathematical area or you've got a master's degree somewhere in some kind of scientific area, engineering area, or doctor's degree. So therefore, because of where your degrees and because of your decision and because you're a strategist and a CEO and all these kind of things, that gives you the right to boss people around. Listen, the church is not the place for you to boss people around, you've got to understand, you have to be in submission to Jesus Christ and to him alone. The head of every man is Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 1.18, when he's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, and you underline that phrase, all things he is to have the preeminence. Did you ever think about this? The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Did you know that's implying submission? That's implying preeminence? You know, if we let this get a hold of us, we could see more of God's will being done on earth when every believer is in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. The head of every man is Jesus Christ. Now notice the second thing. He's, now he's getting to the matter of the home. The head of the woman is the man. Now he's not talking about the man is superior to the wife. I'm, I'm going to write that down right now. You're going to write that down. He's not saying the woman is inferior to her husband and the, wife is superior, the husband is superior to his, to his wife. That's not what he's saying there. If you read Genesis 3... 1 Timothy, Timothy 2. It's by order of creation, which I'll get into in just a minute. But the context here reinforces what Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, verses 22-23. A home has to have order. A home has to have direction. So he says in Ephesians 5, verses 22-23, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Husbands and wives, listen, husbands and wives, they are made equal. They are saved equal. Husbands and wives are heirs together the grace of life. Hey, that's a wonderful thing there. Hey, babe, husbands and wife can both have the power of God. Husband and wife can be great servants of the Lord. Hey, even a wife, a wife might even be a better servant than her husband. But listen, they're co-heirs together in the grace of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the matter of the home, the moment a man proposes to a woman to get married, he's saying there, I, I am willing to, I am taking on the responsibility of being the leader of the home. I'm taking responsibility of providing for our family. I'm taking responsibility for raising our children. I'm taking responsibility for everything that's essential and important for our family. I'm going to lead our family to church. I'm going to lead our family in Bible study. I'm going to lead our family in prayer. I'm going to lead our family in the right things of God. I mean, you're taking responsibility for that. And listen, if you're a man, you're a Christian man not doing that, you are not fulfilling God's will for your home and for your life. But the head of the woman is the man. And God established in Genesis 3.16, he said, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. He said, In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. God established in Genesis 3.16 the matter of submission and subordination into the context of the home. It's rank and order. how God designed it. Why? Because he made the man first. And he made, took the woman out of the man. But notice he gives a higher authority than that. 
The head of the man is Christ, and the head, of every one, the head of every woman is the man. But listen, the highest authority is the fact in redemption. Listen, in redemption. Look at how God did this. God made order in redemption. The head of Christ is God. Notice John 10.10. We see the equality of Jesus Christ and the Father. In John 10.30, 10, Jesus said... When he made that statement, he says, God the Father and God the Son are co-equal. God the Father and God the Son are co-eternal. God the Father and God the Son are co-in essence. They're equal in essence in deity. He said, I and the Father are one. But he went on and said in John 14, 28, he talked about the Son's submission to the Father for the, purpose of, for the purpose of redemption. He said, you have heard I have said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you have loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Now headship, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man. The head of, of, every, the head of Christ is God. Now notice this. In the matter of headship for the rest of this passage, Paul gives two very important symbols. There's the symbol of the hair and the symbol of the head coverings. Write that down. When we read this passage, notice verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. What does that mean? A man was not supposed to wear a head covering. Why? Well, you have to understand the context of the Bible. When Moses came down from the mountain, what was his face like? It shone with the glory of God. But what happened to that glory? It started to fade off. So what did he tell? So what did he do? He wore a, he wore a veil over it, okay? But what? But so because he didn't because he didn't want to give the idea to the people that the glory of God in your life fades away. That doesn't happen. So you know what? We have a new covenant, and the new covenant, Jesus Christ come in, comes into my life. And when Jesus Christ comes into my life, guess what? I have. I don't need to wear a veil. I don't need to wear a covering. Why? Because the glory of God is revealed through my testimony, through my salvation, through my life. So you know what he's saying here? Look at look at verse four. He's saying here in verse four: Every man praying or prophesying when you're publicly worshiping, when you give an utterance of God, when you're speaking something of the word of God to edify people and you're praying, Lord, he says, if you have your head covered, what you're basically saying, you're covering the glory of God. You know what he's saying here? The glory of the man and the glory of the woman, especially for the woman, he says the glory of every man, the glory of every woman is depicted by your head. He says you're dishonoring your head, not this head. He's talking about Jesus Christ. If you have your head covered, you're saying to God that you're disrespecting who God is and his authority in your life. That was the symbol he was using. Look at verse 5. He says, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. You know who her head is? Her husband. Her husband. If she comes to a public worship service and she's praying publicly and prophesying publicly and her head's not covered, she basically is making a bold statement to everyone in that congregation and to the public at large. She says, you know what? I don't care about my husband. I don't have to be submission to my husband. I don't care what you think about. And the Bible's basically saying here, that woman that does it, she might as well shave all her hair off and look like the temple prostitutes. He said, if you feel that way about it, you might as well shave your hair. Look at verse six. He says, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be short. He says, listen, if you're gonna be that way, you might as well just cut your hair short and look like the temple prostitute. He's, he's, he's speaking in a vernacular to them that they understand. It's like, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. He said, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, then let her be covered. I mean, he's using common sense here. So if you're going to be uncovered, you might as well cut your hair short. Because people think that, is she a temple prostitute? What's she doing in here? Did she get saved? <laughs> and he said in verse 6, he says, you know it's a shame if it's disrespectful. It lowers your dignity. Then you cover up. Put on the veil on the shawl. He said in verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to, be, not to cover his head, for as much as he's the image and the glory of God. And Paul makes a very strong statement here. He says, A man is in the image and the glory of God. The man's hair, his, his head, his representation church, is depicting the image and the glory of God. Now, what image? Is it a physical image? No. The spiritual image of the man. And he goes on by saying, verse 7, but the woman is the glory of the man. 
Now he reinforces that later on, but he talks about the man being made of the woman and so forth like that. But all I'm saying right now is Paul, Paul is made, using these two symbols for us to understand. There's a matter of the priority of who, is, who am I giving glory to in my life. Because remember in chapter 10, verse 31, he says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all. He says, he says let me read it to you here because I'm we quoting the wrong verse. He said, Whatsoever therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he's saying here, you want to depict God's glory. He says, men, do not put a covering on your head. He talked about the sovereign order. Notice in verses 8 to 12, quickly, he talked about the created order. Why is the man, why is the woman the glory of the man? Well, man is not of the woman. God made man. Right? God made man out of the dust of the earth. He was the first in order. But the woman's of the man. The woman was taken out of the side of the man. She was taken out of him. The woman traces her glory back to the man. The man traces his glory back to God. Hey, can I tell you something today? You ought to realize tonight that God made us for his glory. God saved you for his glory. Christ liveth in me for his glory. But he says something else. He said in verse 8, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. In verse 9, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now there's two things. He says the woman was taken out of the man, but she was taken out of the man to be the completer of the man. She came alongside to be his helper. I mean, do you see the divine creative order of God? God was creating. He took something and made it more orderly. He made the home. He made the man. He made the woman. He gave it orderliness. But in the essence of public worship, things became disorderly because there was a lack of submission on both sides there. He said in verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. What does he mean by that? Power there means her authority. He's talking about the covering over her head. And he's using the analogy of the woman worshiping God with, a, with her head covered to the angels in Isaiah 6-2 who even before the very appearance of God, they used their wings to cover their faces. Even the angels in heaven, they worship God. Let me just say this tonight. Angels throughout all of eternity are worshiping God. But did you know angels assemble with us and worship with us when we assemble as a church and worship? That's why you need to be an in-person service and worship, amen? You read Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Peter 1.12. These principalities and powers, these angelic beings, they worship with God with us. I want to tell you tonight, the worship of God is a very serious matter. But notice we not only see the created order, but notice the natural order, verses 13 to 16. He said the woman was made for the man. But notice he gets down here, we get down a little bit further here. He said in verse 12, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. Now he's talking about something very interesting. He says, now the woman was made of the man, but then he goes back to the area of equality. He said, but you know what? For procreation purposes, man, there's no, no additional man brought into this world except through the birthing process. So he says here in verse 12, he says, listen, I bring it back full circle here. He says, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also of the woman, all things are of God. You know what he's saying there? He said, listen, I created you equal. But you have a divine role and you, there's a ranking and order that you're supposed to live under. So notice what he says here. He brings it all together. Verse 13. Judging yourselves. Is it comely? Is it sightly? Is it a good thing to behold that a woman praying to God in cover? He says, now, okay, you've done this. Let me just ask you this question, ladies. Does it, is it a sightly thing for you to appear in public worship praying to God in a Corinthian body of Christ with your head uncovered? Now it's coming together with them. They're saying, okay, okay, we get it. Now we understand where we're equal. Now we understand rank and order. Now we understand orderliness. And he goes on by saying this in verse 14. Notice, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame unto him? He said, let's, let's look at the natural order of things. Okay? If, a, if you're doing what you want to do, how about the men? How about the men doing what they want to do? How about the men letting their hair grow a little bit longer? How about the men growing their hair as long as the women? He says, don't you even know by nature men, men have shorter? Hey, listen, the Grecians and the, and, the, and the Hebrews 
And the Romans, all the men had short hair and all the women had long hair. I mean, he's just saying here, in the context of our culture, he says, the natural order of things is, is that he said here that doesn't nature himself even teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him? If a, man, if a man allows himself to, he doesn't take care and groom himself his hair, he says, don't you even understand that the Bible, the, he says, even nature itself tells you it's, it's shameful and disrespectful? Then notice verse 15. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given her for a covering. Now that's an important statement there. We're almost done. The question comes down to, as Paul's dealing with this, are women supposed to wear head coverings to church? Brother Daniel, I heard about a man that you and I know that preached this in a church in a foreign country. He didn't probably study it out. He and another guy. They took over a church where the missionary that was there had messed up. And they caused an uproar and a stir in that entire city because they told all the women in that, in that, little, that little church they were supposed to wear head coverings <laughs> from this passage of Scripture. Believe it or not, that made its way all the way here to America to me. He said, what, I, what did you do about it? I didn't do anything about it. It's not my issue. It's a, it's a local church issue. It's not my issue. Amen? So women supposed to wear a head covering to church? Look again at verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to women. Ladies, your hair is the, the, your, the glory of every woman is your hair. Her hair is given her for a covering. It wasn't right for the women at Corinth to look like the temple prostitutes. Let me just put it this way. They weren't supposed to look like the world. Peter dresses women with braided hair. Remember that in 1 Peter chapter 3? He deals with that area there. So we're going to get, we're going somewhere, almost done. So now Paul pulls it all together. He says, now, okay, now I think I've got it all straight here. I've told the men, you're not supposed to have your head covered when you pray and prophesy, and you're not to have your hair long and look effeminate. And he says here for the ladies, I think I got it straight with you, that you understand that, God, that uh, you're supposed to have your head covered, and God gave you your hair as a covering. Now notice verse 16, how he pulls it all together. Are women supposed to wear hair, head coverings? Here's what he says. But if any man sees to be contentious, we have no such custom. He said, we're not going to fight about this matter. He's laying down a rule for, for future generations of local churches like Heritage Baptist Church. If any man be contentious. Now there were some in that congregation that felt very strongly that women should wear a physical head covering to show their dignity and all these kind of things there. Paul is saying, listen, I want to tell you this. If you don't wear a head covering, if you just have long hair, he says if the woman just has her long hair, don't you know that her hair is a glory to her, her hair is given to her covering? So he says in verse 16, he ties it all together, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Listen, here's what God is saying. For a woman to come to church, the most important thing about her is that her head is covered with her hair. Why? Because it is the glory of the woman. The glory of every woman. The glory of every woman, a saved woman, a married woman, is showing submission and dignity to her husband. Now what does this all mean? How, what do we draw from all this? Let me give you four things that I'm done. Four very quick things. What, what are the conclusions you draw from this? Number one, when we assemble as a church, it is for the worship and the glory of God. Say amen to that. Amen? Man is made for God. Unto him be glory in the church. Church is not about you. It's about him. So we worship God. When we worship God through the centrality of preaching. We lift up Christ through preaching. Number two, when we worship God, when we worship God, the key emphasis of this section of Scripture is about the modesty of our appearance and dress. Did you get that? The issue is dealing with modesty. Okay? We must be distinctive about our genders. We must be distinctive about our genders. Now, there's all kinds of standards. Let me just say this about standards. There's nothing wrong in taking a higher standard. A higher standard is a good thing. In fact, to me, if a higher standard will help me in my holiness to God, I'll take that a holy standard as long as I, by that conviction I have a Bible principle that I can tie to that standard. A standard without a Bible principle is just a tradition. We are, we are to be distinct in our gender and we're to be distinct in our godliness. This whole section of Scripture is dealing with modesty. Modesty. We need to dress modestly. 
We need to appear modestly, okay? We're just not going to degrade ourselves and getting down to the normal contemporary church. Everybody comes the way they want to come. You need to raise yourself up where there's modesty. Number three, the women believers at Corinth were taking their freedom in Christ to such extreme they were showing disrespect to their husbands in public worship by worshiping with their heads uncovered. Now, let me say this. A woman gives glory to God by showing her submission to her husband. It is wrong for a woman, he's saying here, it's wrong for a woman to get up there and to be so active involved in serving God that she does it in a way where there's disrespect and insubordination to her husband. And she was showing that through her physical display without having a head covering. He's just saying here, ladies give glory to God through their submission to their husband, but men, by the same token, give glory to God by being submission to Christ. Number four, and I'm done. We're talking about headaches in the church. Did you know the matter of headship is a matter of the heart? Everything that we just went into, it took an hour to go through all this, it's all about your heart. It's about your heart attitude. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Route of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart tender. Keep your heart teachable. Keep your heart right before God. Keep your heart clean. Be submission to the Lord. And then tonight, open your heart. You're not saved. You're not sure where you're going to spend eternity. Open your heart right now and call upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Tell him that you repent of your sins and that you believe that he died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And you know what? Today, on this ninth day of September, you can be born again into the family of God. You can be saved tonight and be guaranteed that heaven's your home. But you must open your heart. You must open your heart. That if thou should confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You can be saved tonight. But you must open your heart. Would you go join me tonight? Let's pray for a clean heart. Let's pray for a teachable heart. A tender heart. Let's pray for God to help us to keep our hearts with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life.